Last week, we talked about the Lutheran branch, and this time we want to talk more about Reformed worship. This is going to get us closer to the sort of heritage that we have here in a Presbyterian tradition. So the Reformed branch is, is I think, best represented by two figures. One of them is Ulrich Zwingli. Um, Zwingli... Um, Zwingli represents a greater break from the medieval church than Luther. So, you know, he's, he's further away from medieval Catholicism. Um, he differed with Luther on the principles of worship, right? Luther thought if something isn't forbidden, then it is permitted, right? If it's not blatantly uh, unbiblical, then you can stick with it. And that's what we call the normative principle. If you're going to give names to these different principles, then I'll just say... So the normative principle of worship. And um, you know, this led to Luther's attitude that if he could stand to keep something, then he will. Zwingli, on the other hand, says, look, unless scripture positively demands something, then it should be done away with in worship. It should not be included if it is not positively taught. And we are going to go do a deep dive on this uh, at this point. That's going to come later. Um, but this is what's called that. Called, does anyone know the name of that view? Yeah, this is the, this is called the regulative principle. I don't know what the point of me writing that is. My handwriting is inscrutable. Um, but the, there's the normative principle and there's a the regulative principle, and that ends up being one of the worship principles that ends up dividing the Lutherans from the Reformed by and large. Um, let's think of some of the changes this would involve. In worship, so for Zwingli, Zwingli is a big change from Luther. These these two are. If you go to if you went to church in a Lutheran church, and then you were to go to Zwingli's church in Zurich, you would feel like you had stepped onto another planet, because Zwingli removes the religious images, he removes the statues, he removes the crucifixes, he removes the altars, he removes the candles, he removes the relics. All the stuff. <laughs> if you, you know, if you've been into a, uh, I think the kids from St. Stephen's, they made a trip to the cathedral uh, in Portland earlier this week. And it is hard not to admire the architecture, admire the, the work that goes into it, the amount of time that must have gone into the construction. In a certain sense, the beauty of the way everything looks and the how delicate all of the pictures are and there's something on a human level that you just sort of admire when you see that kind of thing. And then if you were to look at a picture of the church in Geneva where Calvin preaches or at, at uh, Zwingli's church, you would, you would think that it was Spartan by comparison. You would have simple pews on a stone floor, bare walls. Uh, you might have a cross. Uh, you would not have a crucifix. Um, you would have... Uh, up at the front, you would have a table for the Lord's Supper, often off to the side uh, or underneath of the pulpit. And the pulpit generally occupies a more prominent place in the room. But they also, yes, Asha. For the benefit of the uh, could you explain the difference between a cross and a crucifix? The difference between a cross and a crucifix. Christ is on the crucifix. Christ is not on the cross. So we don't have a crucifix in here. Thank goodness. Just as an example. <laughs> Just for it as an yes, yeah, thank God even. Um, 
But he also does away with some other things. Zwingli does away with the organ. He does away with the choir. He does away with the priestly robes, the vestments that the pastor would wear. Uh, they get rid of the religious processions. Um, he says, look, the, the New Testament authorizes none of these things, is what Zwingli argues. And so what you have then is a far more simple I used the word Spartan before. I think I'm going to keep using it. I don't see Spartan as a negative word. I see it as a word for simplicity. Um, But it's a far more simple service. Um, They serve communion in Zwingli's church, but they serve it in the pews rather than having people come forward. So something something like what we have, where we take the Lord's Supper out and we administer it in the congregation. Um, They use wooden cups and plates. They don't, don't use like gold or shiny implements. They want to keep things as... They want to keep things free of pomp and formality as much as possible. That's what they're trying to avoid. Uh, Zwingli. Yes, Sue. Why not house churches then? Uh, Why not house churches? Well, you have house churches happening during that time period, but that's the Anabaptists that are doing that. So the the reformers like, like Zwingli and Calvin, they see the Reformation as something that has to happen at the uh, in a public way. And so because of that, the house churches end up being sort of, you might think of them as unauthorized churches that are run by its folks who might be Anabaptist. Um, as much as in the Reformed territories, then the Reform, the Reformation ends up being a public thing. That's why they're called the magisterial reformers, because the magistrate, and someone actually might be able to clarify this even more for me. Uh, um, the, the magisterial reformers are those who are working with the state. They're working t- in tandem with the state so they, that the nation itself experiences a reformation and not just individual churches. Also, they need the protection of the kings. They need the protection of the governors of the territories. So um, a lot of times, like Luther, right? Luther's able to do what he's able to do because he's got a protector, Frederick the Elector. I wish I could set up do, do more rapping right now because it would be great to <laughs> sing more songs about that. But you know they've got public protection from these magistrates. They need them, uh, and so they very much work in hand in hand. And so they're not only is the Reformation then about persuading people, uh, individuals in society, but it's also about persuading the leaders of society that this is what the Reformation is. So. Um, I could not tell you – I am certain of this though. In places like France where the Huguenots are, are gathering and meeting, um, you probably do have house churches. So you probably have house churches in situations where the Protestant religion is not welcome at a state level. So I wish I could say more about house churches. That is about as – honestly as far as I could go and I don't feel safe making things up. So <laughs> Sorry. Um, but Zwingli did propose limiting the Lord's Supper to four times a year. Um, he wanted to make sure that the sermon was front and center rather than the sacrament. He wanted to make that move away from Catholicism because remember, Catholicism, the mass is the center, right? It's really the thing that you're there for. You don't understand the sermon, but you understand the, the mass. You understand that you take the body of Jesus. You understand that you take the blood of Jesus. So Zwingli says, look, in our, in our context, in our moment, we need to have less Lord's Supper and we need to have more preaching. And um, interestingly, the sources that I have didn't tell me how, how many times they actually practiced the Lord's Supper in Zurich. But he proposed limiting it to four times a year. So um, that's the source that I had anyway. Uh, Zwingli did not keep the medieval liturgy. He created a genuinely new Protestant liturgy. 
here's something that you, that you wouldn't recognize. There was not singing in the Zwinglian church. They didn't sing. Uh, the congregation read scripture aloud antiphonally. So maybe one half of the congregation reads part of a psalm. The other half of the congregation reads the next line of the psalm. And so you go back and forth on that. Yes, Eric. If he's practicing the regulative principle, um, how, what was the, his justification or argument in support of that decision given the his, recording of the entire songbook? I'm not sympathetic to Zwingli, so I'm going to try to make up a steel man answer. I'm just curious what yeah. was, if you knew. So I, I don't really know exactly. I, I do know this. Zwingli was concerned that people didn't understand singing in the churches, and he believed that reading scripture aloud was comprehensible. And so this is part of his motivation, at least. From the sources I have, this is part of his motivation is it's more important for people to understand the word of God as they're reading or singing it than it is for people to, to actually sing. Zwingli loves music. He personally is in favor of music. He loves instruments. But he is very concerned. He's, think, I think of it this way. I think, he, I think he responds to what's going on in the Catholic Church and the elaborate music and the elaborate presentations. And he's saying, look, the people's voices need to come front and center again. And right now you've got choirs and um, organs and they are owning the whole room. People don't have to sing. Um, instead, people really can just kind of listen along. And this way, Zwingli's like, we're going to bring back uh, congregations being part of it. Yeah, Benjamin. At what point did the Reformation uh, institute means of grace, one of which was the sacraments, meaning where would that, the means of grace uh, be involved in either Zwingli's, Luther's, or Calvin's life? <clears throat> so Zwingli is so you're asking the question how do the sacraments how do they become how do, how do they become part of the church basically is or that what you're asking grace. yeah um, so the the reformers want the means of grace more than anything else and they want to get rid of all the stuff that's not a means of grace so um, they want the word of God to become central to what's going on in fact we'll get I don't know if we'll get to that today or not but uh, I might not understand exactly the, the, the more specifics of the question you're asking, though, Benjamin. So did the Reformation come uh, uh, teach the means of grace during Calvin's time, during Lutheran's time? Mm. At what point did they, was it determined, these are the means of grace? Well, just, just know these, the way ideas spread often do not happen instantaneously, right? So Luther is publishing his material. It's going out to the universities, You've got someone like Calvin who's at the university and he, he gets, catches wind of Luther's ideas. And of course at the university level um, in, those, in those nations that are Catholic, what's the assumption? The assumption is you're going to read Luther's stuff so that you can refute him. You're going to read Luther's stuff so that you can beat these people, these Protestants, these protesters, so that you can beat them back basically. But a lot of times they end up catching the ideas instead and taking them to places where it's more safe. That's why Calvin makes the run to – well, he's going to Strasbourg, but he stops off in Geneva and doesn't ever quite seem to be able to get away from there. Um, but, the, but as those ideas catch on, then you do have these places where um, you know, the magistrate ends up becoming persuaded himself. 
Uh, maybe the theologians who live within his territory come to him and say, here's what we believe. That's what the Augsburg Confession is. The Lutheran, Lutheran Confession is the Lutherans all getting together and saying, this is what we believe. Let's take it to the leaders of the state where we live. And that's where the, really Lutheranism is born, is from the Augsburg Confession being presented to the magistrate. And the magistrate uh, concedes to it. And then the magistrate basically says, I'm going to defend this view and this teaching within my territory. Um, but, you know, it, it's messy. Um, you know, I like to pre- pre- pretend that in 1517, the world changed only for the better and that it was a smooth sailing of the word of God into every heart and every parish in uh, Germany and the rest of Europe. Instead, it ends up being really messy. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm probably not doing a good job answering your question, Benjamin. <laughs> But um, we will talk more about the, the Lord's Supper. In fact, one of the things I want to say is Zwingli doesn't see the Lord's Supper as integral to the worship service. Um, instead, he sees it as something that is a memorial, not a spiritual means of grace. So you would hear, you would hear me talk about the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. You would hear me talk about... Uh, Christ spiritually feeding us in the Lord's Supper. Um, The sort of view of the Lord's Supper that I teach and that you hear from the pulpit here and that you hear when we administer the Supper is an explicitly Calvinist understanding of the Lord's Supper. It's a spiritual understanding of the Supper. Zwingli did not hold this. Zwingli saw the Lord's Supper as a memorial. He saw it as something where you are remembering something that's true. You're remembering that Christ died. And you're remembering that he gave his life for you. And so in that, you are having an experience. But you would not call it an experience except insofar as you are remembering what Jesus did. So for Zwingli, if you only have the Lord's Supper four times a year, the only thing you are missing out on is an occasional reminder that is tangible. For Calvin, if you, if, you, if you didn't have it very often, you're missing out on something where you're actually, there is spiritual life here when you receive it by faith. It's not just a matter of remembering. It's not just a matter of being a memorial. But for Calvin, he says, when you rightly partake, the Holy Spirit takes Christ in heaven and brings him to you. He doesn't do it physically, but he does do it. And so these two different views of the Lord's Supper end up dividing Protestantism for quite a long time. Um, and we're talking Reformed Protestantism. Yes, Jake. I wish somebody uh, – I would, I feel bad that I never quite understood Luther's view. His view is that the body of Christ is in, under, and with the elements. That's all I can tell you. That's it. It's more physical, but it's not transubstantiation. How is it not transubstantiation? Ask a Lutheran. So you get it with the elements, but they don't change. It's fine that you just said what. It doesn't bother me at all. It might bother Luther. <laughs> no, Luther would say not Catholic. Please don't say that to Lutheran. Well, they won't be your friend anymore if you say that to him. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, for... Luther wants to be able to account for Jesus' words, this is my body, right? 
Hoc est corpus meum. He's he's so angry about it that that uh, you know the Calvin that that the the Zwinglians and the Calvinists they they don't go along with his view of the Lord's Supper. It does give him great fury. Um, so the Lutherans don't back down from that. They remember when he hit his shoe on the table. They never forgot it. And so if they ever were tempted to 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 switch, you know, it didn't last very long because they remember the shoe. Um, <laughs> but so Zwingli, think about it. If you think that your church has a wildly exaggerated appreciation of the Lord's Supper and that you think there are a lot of people in the room who are closet Catholics still and that they, they have like this non-biblical view of the Lord's Supper, then Zwingli's view is, look, just starve them off from it. Make, them, make it so that they don't need this thing and get them to see that they need the preaching of the word of God every week. And so there's a practical side to the infrequency of, of having it um, in Zwingli's church. Um, again, I'm not saying he's right, but I'm just giving you an idea. Why would you want to have it so infrequently? And for him, you know, look, it's not a memorial. It's not – you're not being spiritually strengthened here necessarily by the Spirit's work. Um, and so if it's infrequent, it doesn't matter. Um, People are currently highlighting it. You want to get the people away from false worship as fast as you can. And, you know, bringing that correction, you know, Benjamin, you were talking just sort of about what's it look like to transition from this, this, what we were just talking about as far as what's going on in the Middle Ages to something so, so simple like what Zwingli's talking about. You could imagine that at a practical level that is difficult to implement because you're going to have people in the pews who are – some of them are very persuaded that this was an error. And you're going to have other people who are like, I didn't see the problem with any of this stuff. And they're still holding on to it and they still like these things and they don't understand why Zwingli is taking away the singing, for example. Yeah, just, they don't get it. Um, so Zwingli, though, is alone among the reformers when it comes to this view of the supper, the infrequency of the supper. Now, his view still ends up persisting, and it still is the view of many churches in the United States, I would say. Um, there are churches that have a low view of the supper. When I say low, I don't mean bad. I, well, yeah, I don't mean bad. What I mean by that is they don't see it as a spiritual Thing They see it as this is me doing something to remind myself. And when, when someone does that, that is a Zwinglian understanding of the supper. Whether they've ever heard of Zwingli or not, they probably haven't. Um, but that is what they're, what they're doing. Now, Calvin, on the other hand, Gal- Calvin, on the other hand, um, is similar to Zwingli in the sense that he rejects most of the ritual of Catholic worship. He rejects the images. He rejects the candles. He rejects the priestly robes and, and so on, the altar. Um, all of the things that Zwingli uh, rejects as far as especially the visibility of the church, of the visible things in the church. Calvin has a, uh, a very simple view of the supper. In fact, um, give me three seconds. I have this book here. I want to see if I can find this picture. I have a picture of the sanctuary in St. Peter's in Geneva. And I will just pass it around and let you kind of take a glance at it. Here we go. I'm just going to pass this around. This is from St. Peter's Basilica in... uh, Wait, not Basilica. St. Peter's in Geneva. 
Here's a, just a very, that's a, here, you can just turn that around. This is a picture of what it looks like in St. Peter's. It's extremely simple. Um, you are missing, what's that? One year. Uh, well, it's still standing, so it would have been a recent picture. No, no. when was it built? Oh, St. Peter's? It would have been Catholic before. I don't know, I don't know when St. Peter's was built, but it was built before the Reformation. So it's standing at the time that Geneva moves to being Protestant. Um, but very simple sanctuary, very simple. Um, anything, you know, when you think of Calvinist, you probably will be thinking of something very Spartan and simple. So he's, he's with Zwingli on that. But Calvin also doesn't see himself as being far apart from the church that came before. He sees what he's doing as very much in continuity with the church, even more than Zwingli did. Uh, Calvin quotes voluminously from the patristics, from the church fathers. Uh, he quotes a lot from the church fathers. Um, Calvin is much more positive on congregational singing. Uh, and by much more positive, I mean they had it. <laughs> they had it in Geneva. They didn't just recite the text of scripture, but they would sing the text of scripture. They would sing the Psalms. Um, they published a French songbook. This French songbook included 17 psalms. It included Simeon's song from Luke 2. You remember the song where Simeon said, uh, uh, speaks after holding the child Jesus. Um, they put the Ten Commandments to music. They put the Apostles' Creed to music. And they sang these things publicly in Geneva. So they're, they're not exclusive psalmists. They're singing things other than the psalms. Um, but they are not singing them with, with um, instruments. They are still singing them a cappella. They've done away with the organ and they've not replaced it with anything. So Calvin is not an exclusive psalmist, but he is an inclusive psalmist. He wants to make sure that the church is singing the psalms. Um, he had a high view of singing the psalms. He, he wanted to make sure the church did that. Um, I'll read you a little bit of a quote from, from Calvin. He says, Now what Augustine says is true. Namely, that no one can sing anything worthy of God which he has not received from him. Therefore, even after we have searched every, carefully searched everywhere, we shall not find better or more appropriate songs to this end than the songs of David, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And for this reason, when we sing them, we are assured that God puts the words in our mouth as if he himself were singing through us to exalt his own glory. Um, he wrote that in the preface to the Genevan Psalter in 1542. So, you know, he's, they printed a songbook and he wants the Genevans to understand why are we singing all of these songs? Why are all of these psalms in here? And he wants them to understand why. Um, he did not believe you could sing anything better than the psalms. I think this is still true. I think that any song that we write, even Amazing Grace, you know, one of the greatest songs that ever, ever was written, you, you can't improve on the psalms. It doesn't mean we shouldn't sing other songs. It just means that if you have a church where there's no psalms being sung, I think you have an impoverished church. I think you have a church where the hearts of people need God's word and they need to be memorizing it. And part of the way you memorize stuff is to sing it. Um, you know, um, see, the Lutherans retain the use of the organ. The Reformed churches sing without instruments, though. Um, the worship service. So Calvin believed the Lord's Supper was a means of grace, more than a memorial, right? We've talked about this already. He believed that it was a true spiritual benefit to those who partook by faith, and therefore Calvin wanted it every week. Now, we talked about this last week. Does anyone remember, why did the authorities in Geneva not want weekly Lord's Supper? 
It's okay if you don't remember. John's got the answer. Your, your assertion was that yeah. this would weigh too heavily on the consciences of some who might not want to have to practice that frequently. Yeah. I would assert that the Geneva magistrate was following the example of Zurich and the other Swiss cities. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to be in unison. But they wanted to follow. The, they wanted to make sure everybody was doing it the same. It could be. I'm dependent on my own sources for that. So, But your assertion is that it would weigh too heavily on the conscience of some. That's right. So that is, and I don't remember if it was Nick Needham's chapter in Give Praise to God or if it was Scott Manesh's chapter on this in Calvin's Company of Pastors. But that was certainly what I read was that the, the, the magistrate was concerned that the spiritual authority to administer the Lord's Supper every week would, be, would weigh more heavily on somebody excommunicated. And so their, their desire was, well, look, we don't want the, the sessions of, of, of Geneva to have this much authority. And so this was a way to do that. It actually could be both. Um, you, know, you could have your own motivations for doing it, and you could say Zurich is doing it too. We're going to follow their, their model. Um, so it could be both and. Um, here, I'm going to give you a quote from Scott Manesh. Scott Manesh has a book that I don't physically have, so I can't hold it up and show it to you guys. But one of my favorite books that I read when I was in seminary, and I read it for a directed study on the issue of the Lord's Supper. I, I got to the end of seminary, and I felt like, sorry, RTS, I'm going to say something about you. I did not have good instruction on the Lord's Supper still when I got to the end of seminary. You spend a few classes on the subject, and then you move on. And I wanted a deeper dive. And so I got this book called uh, Calvin's Company of Pastors by Scott Manetch. And Scott Manetch has this section where he talks about the reforms that were put in place in Geneva. And it's such a good summary that I'm going to read it for you because he does a good job of saying what changes. So what changes from the medieval to the reformed era of Geneva? He says, Geneva's churches no longer observe the Catholic sacraments of confirmation, penance, holy orders, ordination, marriage, and extreme unction. Just for the record, they're still getting married. It's just not a sacrament, right? Um, Though the Lord's Supper and baptism were still celebrated, the liturgical form and theological substance of these two sacraments were substantially changed. Public worship in Reformed Geneva was simpler and less ornate than in the medieval church. Gone were the processions, the incense, the candles, the acolytes, the monastic choirs, and the melodious organs. Instead, the reformers created a liturgy that gave priority to public prayers, the proclamation of the word of God, and a cappella singing of the Psalter. Even the, relig- even the rhythm of religious time was transformed as Calvin and Geneva's magistrates stripped nearly all religious holidays from the calendar. So that's a pretty big change, right? That is, if you're used to a medieval cycle, if you're used to a uh, medieval service in, uh, in Geneva, and then these changes get put into place, not only are you going to probably resist them in some ways, but you're going to miss some of those things that came before. You know, uh, you know, you think of changing one thing in a church and everyone's like kind of scared. What's about to happen, right? <laughs> I, went back to, I went back to Kansas for a pastor's conference. And uh, when I was driving through town, I drove past the church I used to pastor. And they had removed all of the windows. They had these old purple windows on the sides and had been replaced with clear glass. And I got to visit with the pastor there and asked him, you know, how's it going? You just changed something pretty big in the sanctuary. And he was like, it's okay. It's okay. Nobody's mad. Nobody's mad. (laughs) Uh, I thought he was going to tell me there's been a rebellion. (laughs) Or you get to the church and there's someone else like, we're in charge now. Get out of here. Um, 
But, you know, you never know. You never know. You change one little thing, but then here you go. That's a big change, right? The Reformation is a huge change for Geneva. Um, here's a typical order of service for, for Geneva. And we say, I say this pretty confidently because we have a great record of the orders of service that were in Geneva. Now, that doesn't mean that it never varied from year to year. But this is basically the order of a worship service in Geneva, Switzerland in the mid-1500s. When Calvin's there. So the service begins with a scripture reading. You know, it doesn't actually open with a, um, it doesn't actually open with what we think of as a call to worship. Um, The call to worship is something that comes later after the Reformation, which I know might seem really strange, right? Because it seems so natural to start the worship service off with a call to worship. Well, instead it begins with a scripture reading. Um, and then it begins with an opening, opening prayer, which usually has a confession of sin included in it. After that opening prayer, a psalm is sung, and then a prayer of illumination is given. Because we're about to read from God's word, so what do we do? We pray before we read the scripture. Now, I, I do a prayer of illumination, but I do it after the reading of scripture. Uh, when I went to school... Everybody has their strong opinions on when you should pray. Some say you've got to pray before you read the scripture so that as you're reading it, it's got the blessing of God. And then I like to read it afterwards um, or pray afterwards. So I, I don't think there's a right or wrong, but the way they did it in Geneva, at least, was you pray before you read the sermon text. Then you would read the sermon text. You would read the scripture passage. This is actually too low for many of you to actually see. So I'm just going to push it up here a little bit more. Um, Then you would actually read the scripture text and then you would have the sermon. There would be a prayer of intercession after the sermon, followed by the Lord's Prayer. Um, Then they would recite publicly the Apostles' Creed. Not actually far off, right? It's pretty similar to what we do as well. Um, And then they would be preparing the bread and the wine uh, when you were having a, a service, including the Lord's Supper. Then you would have the words of institution, an exhortation regarding the supper, and then a prayer of consecration. The idea is that prayer is integral to the Lord's Supper. For Calvin, if you don't have prayer in the Lord's Supper, there's nothing spiritual going on here. This is just a human activity. If you don't have the word of God being read, that's why you need the words of institution. Then again, you're just coming by your own authority and doing a ceremony that you think is helpful. Um, the Lord's Supper needs to be administered with God's, with the gravity of God's call and God's command. And God's word. And then you, they would participate in communion while singing a psalm or a hymn. Then they would close in prayer and then they would have a benediction. And for Calvin, that benediction was the same benediction I use each Sunday. It's the, the Aaronic blessing from number six. And that's what a s- typical Sunday service would look like in Geneva. Now, Calvin still used the, a version of the church calendar, but it was a very simplified version of the church calendar. Calvin's church calendar looked like this. Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. Other than that, he didn't, he didn't even, as far as we know, he didn't even do Advent, right? You just have Christmas and you have Good Friday. You have Easter. But his, as opposed to Luther, right? Luther's fine having all the sort of these in-between holidays all of the holidays leading up to Christmas, all of the holidays leading up to Good Friday, all of the holidays after Easter. So that half of the year is taken up with holidays in the Lutheran calendar. And for Calvin, these are five points on the church calendar that are to be acknowledged. 
Um, so that's pretty different. That's a big difference from Luther to Calvin. Um, but there are no more excess holidays between and no more saints days. So they don't have any more um, holidays named after different saints or, or anything of the sort, which d- occupied most Sundays in the Roman Catholic calendar. It's at this point that I would start talking about preaching in the Reformed tradition, but we are basically, we have four minutes left, so I'm not going to do that. Does anybody want to ask questions that I won't be able to answer? <laughs> yeah, Benjamin. Not that you might not be able to answer, but would you think that Jess Meyer's book, The Lord's Service, uh, is very much uh, such as Calvin's is and is now used by the Presbyterian Church? I haven't read it. I have... I, I knew... Uh, <laughs> I don't have I'm not so I'm not so positive on that author from some of the things that I've heard from him in the past so I would be slow to I would be slow to recommend that book to somebody I'd have to read it for myself but uh, so I can't speak to the specifics of that exact book though Sorry well, I didn't catch the author in book Oh the book was Jeffrey Meyer The Lord's Service So Yeah Sorry He builds the New Testament service Yeah, so like the temple service, sort of, yeah. <clears throat> Any other questions? I thought I saw a hand. I thought I saw a hand. Off that way. No? This is a softball question. Um, I love softball questions. Yeah, Great. Make you look good. Um, so this is what deacons are for. Luther had the same, Luther had the same 66 books yeah. that we have. Mm-hmm. The canon was well established by 1500. Yes. They should put that in the deacon's vows, right? Will you occasionally ask softball questions during Sunday school hour? <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah, John. Oh, I brought this up the outside. I don't know if all of you have listened to the coronation oath that King Charles gave yesterday. If you haven't listened to it, it will gladden your Protestant heart. All right. Oh, hey, book recommendations and just, uh, I don't know what to call that one, but that's a coronation recommendation. So. What's that? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there we go. Well, let me close us in prayer. You know, we're always keeping those kids outside without adult supervision for an extra five minutes each time. What if we were ready for them the minute they sprung outside? I would be very excited. Jake? I'm sorry. You're about question. to ruin this. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the Catholics and Protestants battled and war. Did these three groups ever have... Conflict, physical yeah. conflict? I I am slow to say yes to that. Now, you may have had conflicts between the magistrates, um, but Zwingli's in battle, right? Zwingli, Zwingli's a, as I understand it, Zwingli was a pacifist, but he, was, he went to war as a chaplain and ended up dying in battle. Um, but that's in battle against the Catholics. So... Say that again. He, he opposed the mercenary trade. He was not. He was not a pacifist. All right. See, this is why I need other people in the room. Yes, Larry. The Anabaptist group broke off from Zwingli. They became very violent. They went to the Netherlands area, all of the northeast of where they departed from after they broke off. Full of baptism. Yeah. 
read a whole lot of interesting things in the scripture that finally enraged the princes in that area, and they went to war, and they, they tried to wipe them out. So uh, of, of particular interest, and some, and some of you may be interested in this, if you really want to know how wild Anabaptism could get, um, there was a trouble in the city of Munster, and it was so ugly and horrible that things happened there that when I think about them, I still have nightmares. So, I mean, like, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna repeat them. What's that? Catholics and the Protestants were very united on their opposition to the Anabaptists and what they did in Munster. Let's put it that way. Isn't that why they're sworn pacifists now? No, who the Anabaptists? Yeah, the Mennonites and your. I. If I'm you were to ask me why did the Mennonites? Why were they pacifists? I would tell you that in good good faith, I think it's because they think that Jesus taught pacifism. Uh -huh. But maybe there's a sociological That's or political reason why they end up. Yeah. Yeah, could have they been. Still feel bad about Maybe they do still feel bad about Munster. Well, there are two cages out in Munster, and um, there are, the skeletons are no longer in the cages. I don't think. Um, but uh, if you ever want to uh, know, find out how they got there, then uh, do a deep dive on the internet, and I'm sure someone is willing to tell you that story. Um, there's a there's a podcast called Hardcore History that you could look up, and if you wanted to listen to them tell the story of Munster, then. Um, again, you'll have all your worst nightmares come to life by listening to that. But I want to uplift you all. And so I am going to uh, pray for you instead. And uh, now we're still leaving on time. So, uh, But we can talk more afterwards because these are interesting subjects. And there's, they are areas where there is deep reason for me to still have plenty to learn. So I, I'm giving you sort of the cream off the top. And then I have a lot to learn still too. So uh, you never stop learning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your work in the church. We recognize that, um, Lord, even though the church is your church, on earth there are still men who lead your church. And we thank you for your work in history, God, for the ways that you raised up people to proclaim your word. We thank you for changing hearts. We thank you for we thank you for the Reformation, Lord. We, we recognize that while there was much excess that came along with the Reformation and there was a great deal of chaos and upheaval in Europe during these times, we also recognize, God, that your word was speaking. Your word was speaking to men and women and boys and girls and people were hearing the gospel and they were hearing the Bible in their language. And so, God, as, as much as Life is complex and difficult and challenging, God. We thank you that you still work. And we pray that you would still be at work, that you would even reform us, that if there are ways in which our own practices, oh God, don't line up with your scripture, I pray that you would show it to us, that you would make it evident, uh, and that you would guide us, that you would guide us even still by your word and by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.